This programme was produced at and first aired on NPR, Manawatu People's Radio, with support from New Zealand On Air. Kapai Irarangi Tomotu, NPR. Support this show and others like it by giving a donation. For more information, go to www.mpr.nz forward slash donate. Hi, I'm Greg Watson and welcome to this week's show of Property Matters. Lovely having your company. We're going to start with a little bit of local news, then move into the more national and then go on to the renting space from there. This article was by Paul Mitchell in early January and is entitled A Waste of Space, Historic High Flyers Building Rotting Away in Limbo. And for those of us who are slightly older, we'll remember it's the historic post office as well as being a former night spot. So it's on the corner of the square and I believe that's Main Street. So it says it's prime real estate but been left to languish. The decaying shell of the once popular night spot sits in limbo on a prime piece of real estate. It's too expensive to repair and too historic to completely tear down. So we're in a bit of a dilemma if any of you have been wondering why it's been sitting there so long. It's been largely empty over the last seven years. Many of its windows are broken or boarded up and the building is marked with graffiti and fading marks where the former nightclub signs once were. It's a pretty sorry sight for people using the Main Street bus terminal and undermines efforts of the City Council's nearby $2.4 million makeover of the eastern side of the square. The building is owned by Auckland-based company Palmerston North Post Limited and we haven't been, the staff wasn't able to reach them for comment. So Palmer's North developer Brian Green said that despite the site being full of potential, the building was likely to remain empty for years to come because of earthquake strengthening required was more trouble than it was worth. He had looked into buying the building himself a couple of years ago because he thought it would be a good location for a new hotel with retail space on the ground floor. Even then, the High Flies building was in such poor condition it made more sense financially to knock it down and start from scratch. However, it's not a viable option because the building has heritage protection and a developer would need to keep at least the old facade. It's, an, it's a 114-year-old building. It's been there for a while. You can see it in plenty of old, uh, old photographs, etc. And it's just a, a matter of waiting to see what is going to happen with it. So that just a bit of an update on, on what's happening there. It's likely to be there for a little while too. Another thing with regards to our region in general, Manawatu Wanganui region, is there was really quite a good article on in early January by Kelsey Wilkie on stuff.co.nz who says why it's worth making a detour to Wanganui. Now, despite this being, a, I guess, a bit of a travel article, it does illustrate that Wanganui's got a lot going for it. The house prices are still relatively cheap there and a lot of people are moving there. It talks about things like the surprising art scene, the cool cafes and bars and access to some of New Zealand's most historic and dramatic river scenery and they're saying it's well worth a detour. For those of you who follow me on Facebook will know that I stopped off at the beach suburb of Castlecliff uh, to the Citadel and they mention it here, brilliant burgers, cool baristas, good coffee and it's just a uh, lovely area there at Castlecliff. So they go on and talk about uh, the family-friendly aspect as well. There's a fantastic museum, there's a uh, war memorial tower that you can go up and have a look in Kofi Park is where I often take my children. 
plenty of stuff for the active people as well, jet boating, rafting and so forth. So it's really nice to see an article there that's that's promoting Wanganui. It is a lovely place. It recently won uh, the most beautiful, I think it was, town. Correct me if I'm wrong. You, might, you always leave a comment somewhere about that. Uh, in New Zealand, that was nice to see. So even though Wanganui is reasonably affordable, this article from New Zealand Advisor Online says buying a first home will be more difficult in 2021, according to CoreLogic. So CoreLogic's latest house price index revealed that the nationwide property prices have increased by a near-record growth rate of 2.6 in December 2020, with average property price hitting almost $790,000. It says that as house prices continue to skyrocket due to low interest rates, attractive capital gains and tight supply, CoreLogic Head of Research Nick Goodall said entering the market will be impossible for many Kiwis in 2021. He says that even with availability credit and low interest rates, the more property prices increase, the more difficult it's going to be for the number of people to access that amount of money to buy a property. And as that happens, demand will reduce and you'll likely see a slowdown in price growth. Renters United spokesperson Ashok Jacobs said house prices were a national crisis. The lack of housing supply was also squeezing the rental market, with many Kiwis now flocking towards flats and other rental properties. He says there's not enough supply and that's one of the main things that needs to happen. There needs to be a huge amount of more houses built. So I'll come to another article on that later in the show. He says that we're seeing a disparity between people who have a lot of capital and people who are just trying to make ends meet. We're seeing that disparity increase. Infometrics senior economist Brad Olson emphasised the increasing pressure on the government to act quickly. He says in the short term there is going to be incredible political and economic pressure over the next six months or so around house prices, affordability and housing, New Zealand, um, housing in general. And Stuff has launched a new measure of first home affordability. So using the median first home prices from CoreLogic, each month Stuff is tracking how many weeks of savings in median income households are needed for a standard deposit and what the mortgage on that first home will cost. So the number of weeks savings has been up four weeks in November and it's now 224 weeks of savings that will be required to get to a standard deposit. Just doing the maths, that tells me just over four years. The mortgage, uh, fortnightly mortgage repayments, uh, 882, which is also up. And uh, that's something which is um, fairly substantial as well. So it's interesting because it's sort of like the juggernaut that even COVID-19 couldn't kill off. In the early months of the global pandemic, there were predictions, I don't know if you remember, of a drop in house prices as the economy tanked and thousands of people took mortgage holidays. Yet, in the year to October, every region except Canterbury saw house prices increase by more than the average worker takes home in a year. So the hand wringing and frustration has hit a new high too. According to this article, greedy investors, a lack of infrastructure, planning restrictions and cost of construction and restrictions on low deposits have all copped the blame for spiralling prices over the last decade. Bank economists are now among those clamouring for capital gains tax, but Jacinda Ardern has staked her Prime Ministership on never introducing one. 
But the house prices alone are only one part of the picture for first home buyers. That deposit required, the interest rates and income also factor in as to whether it's a possibility or a pipe dreams. That article was on stuff. Uh, it makes for quite an interesting read indeed. Uh, with that in mind, the according to this article called Action Needed to Halt Rocketing House Prices, CoreLogic, was on stuff.co.nz by Miriam Bell recently. The Reserve Bank is under attack for pouring fuel on the house price bonfire with its latest move to boost the economy, but its defenders say it's not the bank's job to control the housing market. So again, that near record growth in November shown by CoreLogic is discussed in this article. This uh, does strip down some of the markets in particular. Uh, Gisborne had the biggest rise at 30.4%, one or two not far behind that either. Um, I will leave those stats for another day. But the important thing to know is that prices are shooting up. The Reserve Bank was asked or, or considered to reintroduce the central bank's request to include a debt-to-income restriction in its toolkit so that you cannot take on too, debt, too much debt relative to your income. So it would have more impact, they say, than tightening up the LVRs, which is the loan-to-value ratio. So really it's just a matter of seeing what the, what the government can do. And that leads on to, to this article, which talks about uh, bad news for buyers, housing stock at record lows, which was um, a day after that, and this was on stuff.co.nz. So really things have been, been moving uh, significantly. Um, the, certainly there's not very many houses for sale in this region. Um, there were, of all the properties listed in December of 2020, half were in Auckland, Wellington and Canterbury. doesn't surprise me, not many of the regions would be selling because the prices are so good. And that led on to an opinion piece uh, late December by Stan, Sam Stubbs. And his piece was How to Solve the Housing Crisis. And I agree uh, totally with some of his points in here, but let's just get the general gist to start with. So the housing problem looks like a heavy rate weight wrestling match. There's bickering between the Minister of Finance, Reserve Bank Governor, uh, the banks, councils and social agencies. And first of all, in this opinion piece, he says, let's be thankful for a high-quality problem. New Zealand is in a much better economic state than many of our peer countries, and we're effectively COVID-free, uh, thanks to some great decision-making and our team of 5 million. With all the economic stimulus, economists should have spotted the boom in housing prices. You simply can't have that much money sloshing around with interest rates this low without it happening. Again, this is an opinion piece, but they say one economist said they're making weather forecasters look good right now, and she's right. I mean, let's be clear, no one person or institution is responsible alone for the recent rise in house prices. Housing is a very huge and complex problem, and any solution involves must involve the government, reserve bank, councils, private individuals, iwi and investors. House prices are sensitive to interest rates, which have been trending down for decades, but low interest rates aren't the Reserve Bank's fault alone. It's a global phenomenon and we're a globally connected economy. Much of the long-term fall in interest rates is due to technology. Just ask any retailer who competes with online websites. They can't put their prices up, which means little or no inflation. 
And as our population increases, so does housing demand. And that creates problems for councils on supplying land, utilities and transport. And banks can't resist lending on housing just because it's so profitable. And let's not forget that many don't want taxation on houses as an investment. As a people, we love making money from houses. So let's start by accepting that many things and many people have played their part in getting house prices so high so no one is solely to blame. So how do we look at addressing the current problem? The key is to look at houses like any other commodity. It's all about basic supply and demand. Like with milk prices, the cost comes down only when long-term supply increases significantly. Trying to influence housing demand doesn't solve the problem because everyone needs a place to live. As long as our population increases, rising housing demand is a given. So don't make it harder for people to buy houses. In Auckland alone, the 2018 housing shortfall was estimated at a minimum 28,000 dwellings. And because nationally nationally at least 14,000 homes are demolished or fall down each year, we need to build that amount annually just to stand still. The simple truth is, as long as houses are in short supply, prices will stay high and may keep on rising. So how do we increase supply? Central government is the key, but may need to play their part, according to this. So this has happened in the past. The Liberal government launched the Workers' Dwelling Act in 1905 to address chronic housing shortages and poor quality. The Labour government started building state houses in 1936, with the first one completed a year later at 12 Fife Lane, Miramar, and symbolically Michael Joseph Savage, then the Prime Minister, carried the dining table through the door himself. And by 1978, the 100,000th state house was completed. According to the writer, history gives us a simple message here. A rising population needed homes and the government stepped in to build them in volume. They were very well built and there is a premium paid for old state houses for a good reason. You see, the government has huge advantages to building in scale. It can make laws and has the money. So it needs to get on with the job. If it doesn't, housing affordability might decide the next election and the one after. And there is an unfortunate double whammy for the government with housing affordability. Unless it is solved, childhood poverty will struggle to improve. There's an excellent study in 2018, a stock take of New Zealand's housing, which summarised the social costs of poor housing quality and supply. Children changing schools to often sickness and under-insulated homes, retired people relying on short-term rentals, the cost of housing insecurity is a roll call of misery for young and old. So if the Prime Minister really wants to address childhood poverty, housing security and quality has to be a major priority. Housing is a basic human right and it's one increasingly denied to too many. Previously, Labour governments have understood this and so should this one. It's simple. The only way to solve the housing crisis long term is to build more houses. It's hard to do but that's no excuse. We've done it before, let's do it again on top of its caring and compassion, the government needs to load up on concrete and cranes. So that's uh, an article from Sam Stubbs. I certainly agree, uh, government intervention. And when they announced Kiwi Build those years ago, I thought that's not, it's not making it easier for people to buy homes that will solve the problem. It's having homes available to buy. And that's the scenario we find ourselves here now in Manawatu, Wanganui and further afield. Very few properties to buy. Uh, And if we can bring in that state uh, building structure that can build huge amounts of homes, that will make life a lot easier indeed.
We're just going to go for a song now. A little bit of Jimi Hendrix for you. This is Foxy Lady. Jimi Hendrix with Foxy Lady and you're listening to Property Matters on NPR, I'm Greg Watson, te reo irarangi o ngā tangata o Manawatu, Manawatu People's Radio. So lovely to have your company. Here's an article from Stuff, we're now going into the realms of bad landlords, bad tenants, which I do sometimes. So this first article says, Tribunal rejects compensation claim as tenants can't be found. So landlords attempt to get compensation for damages and rubbish Removal at a South Canterbury property has been rejected on the grounds that the tenants cannot be found. So it's interesting. And Tenancy Tribunal adjudicator Jay Green ruled on December the 14th that the hearing on the landlord's concerns could not proceed until the tenants of the property at Queen Street, Pareora, can be notified and served the application. So legally, a Tenancy Tribunal application must be served either in person or sent to their postal address. 
So where a landlord is not able to contact the tenants and does not know their address, the wheels can fall off. So Green noted that if the landlord is unable to locate the tenants despite making all reasonable efforts to do so, then he could either apply for the tribunal to allow him to serve the application in an alternative way that is likely to bring it to the attention of the party. So what's that? You deliver it to workplace, uh, to email, etc. So interesting to uh, know that um, that still happens. So it's good to get forwarding addresses uh, and addresses for service that are more than just the address that the people are Renting, so in other words, address for service could be an email address uh, these days, and uh, could be another physical address as well where mail could get to them. Here's another one: a lower hut tenant loses part of her bond following a costly and hurried mistake. A lower hut tenant abandoned a fixed term agreement and lost part of her bond in what has been labelled a costly and hurried mistake by the Tenancy Tribunal. Monique Mercedes Gomez had signed a fixed-term tenancy agreement for a property in Lower Hutt when she decided she didn't want to move in. The day she arrived to occupy the property, she was concerned about the condition, so she emailed the property managers, Valley Rental Management Limited, with a list of things that needed fixing. She said the oven, dishwasher, floor under the dishwasher, inside of the cupboards and toilet bowl were dirty. Cupboards in the laundry needed handles and some doors needed easing. Gomez was concerned that the house was not fully insulated as there were awning windows that didn't fully close. So after not receiving a response the next morning, Gomez contacted the property managers and said she decided not to move in and left the keys in the house. That afternoon, Valley Rental Management emailed Gomez and said they wanted to address her concerns and offered to professionally clean the house. The property manager said the company would also clean the cupboards, but the landlord was not willing to repaint the inside of the house. Tribunal adjudicator Brent Smallbone said Gomez did not have the right to end the tenancy as she needed either agreement from the landlord or an order from the tribunal to break a fixed-term contract. The matters she was disappointed about were all able to be remedied, Smallbone said. Gomez was annoyed that the landlord had not responded by 9am the next day, however she was required to give the landlord 14 days to rectify any concerns. So he said it was unfortunate that Gomez did not check her legal rights before making the hurried and costly decision to walk away from a tenancy. So the landlord's costs, including lost rent, compensation and filing fees, were $1,519. However, $200 was deducted for failing to provide a reasonably clean house. So the landlord was awarded just over $1,300 in rent arrears, compensation and filing fees, which was deducted from the bond. So that's just a word of warning. Uh, there is a process to follow in these circumstances and tenancy contracts are a little bit different than what you might say uh, ordinary contracts in common law where they're covered by the legislation that says there is a process to go through should you be unhappy. So be careful if you're a tenant uh, around those sorts of things. Here's another one. Landlord ordered to pay $2,500 to a refugee family over the state of a rental. So this was from the New Zealand Herald. So what were the concerns? Well, the concerns included maggots in the kitchen and a rat infestation. Sounds lovely. The Residential Tenancies Act requires landlords to provide accommodation in a reasonable state of cleanliness, a duty in which the tenants claim the landlord failed. So Immigration New Zealand and the Red Cross had arranged the Wellington tenancy for the family who did not speak English fluently. 
In March last year, New Zealand went into Level 4 lockdown as part of national response to COVID-19. That delayed the first inspection until early May when the country entered Level 2. At the inspection, a Red Cross support worker advised the property management of the tenants' concerns about the state of the house. The, the tenants told the Tenancy Tribunal they noticed the maggots and rats within a few weeks, and they provided photographic and video evidence of a cracked kitchen bench top, which they say was not attached securely to the wall. They alleged part of it broke off on an occupant's foot, and there were also maggots living in the cracks. The tenants say they could not use the bench top due to the precarious and unsanitary nature of it, the recent Tenancy Tribunal decision reads. They had to barricade the entrance to the kitchen so their two year old child could not accidentally pull it on himself. The tenants felt forced to prepare and cook their food on the floor. This has caused problems for one tenant, health problems, and it was raised at the inspection and two days later a 14-day notice to remedy. In response on behalf of the landlord, it was asserted the bench top was attached securely, the cracks were aesthetic only, and there was no danger of it breaking off. The Tenancy Tribunal ruled that the landlord failed to maintain the bench top to a reasonable standard and between the start of a tenancy and when the laminate was installed. The cracks allowed maggots to hibernate and created a safety concern for the tenants. The tenants were able to use the bench after the laminate was applied. So the sum of $480 in compensation and $200 in exemplary damages was awarded. Window gaps that led in drafts and water resulted in $300 being given to the family and another $200 were awarded because there were rats in the premises for most of the tenancy. Bearing in mind if a tenant rents a property and it has pests existing and in place, it is the landlord's responsibility to get rid of them. So the tenant's evidence is that their children were traumatised by the rats and the effects have been ongoing, the Tenancy Tribunal decision reads. Because of their children's fears, they often had broken night's sleep, always had to accompany them to the bathroom and had to sleep together to reassure them. It was extremely stressful for all. So there was a number of things there as well. The property manager also made two unscheduled visits, and uh, which meant that the tenants were unable to enjoy peaceful enjoyment. So a total of $2,500 was paid by the landlord to the tenants for those various breaches. It's just amazing that we have to read these cases, um, considering how hard the government and others are working to up the standard of property. So it really does sadden me uh, that people are experiencing these sorts of things in uh, renting in New Zealand but uh, it does happen, it's really important to know your rights whether you're a tenant or a landlord because uh, tenants have rights and responsibilities landlords have rights and responsibilities and there are considerable fines and tariffs that can go either way against either party for breach of the Tenancy Act and that's even breaches that are unintentional or I guess you could say well-meaning, so accidental in other words. So be very careful around that legislation and uh, that's about all I can say about that. But that was Bad Tenants and Bad Landlords for this week and that actually brings us to the end of the show, Property Matters, here on NPR. It's been wonderful having your company. I'm Greg Watson and I look forward to talking to you again in a week's time. Have a wonderful, wonderful week. If you're a fan of NPR, listening to our podcasts and live stream has never been easier. Just search for accessmedia.nz on the App Store or Google Play and download the app with the Kiwi Fruit logo. Once you've got it, pick Manawatu People's Radio from the list of stations and go find your new favourite show.